At eLearning Brothers, we're helping everyone become an eLearning rock star with advice from learning industry thought leaders and how-to tips for engaging learners. This podcast features audio from our weekly webinar series. You can register to watch future webinars live at eLearningBrothers.com. In this episode, we're covering the periodic table of instructional design. Without further ado, I'll turn the time over to our presenter, Jen Fairbanks. Okay, so I know that this periodic table has been out for a little while. We've gotten some great feedback and, and positive comments on it. And what I wanted to do today, and we're going to dive into some of our favorite instructional design elements or some of the favorite um, sections of the table, just to go through um, the ones that we feel are going to make the most immediate impact to your training. Um, so that uh, quick wins, they'll, they'll allow you to have some quick wins and, and really amp up your e-learning. So with that said, let's take a look. And as Andrew mentioned, this is the periodic table of instructional design. It's actually available if you'd like to download it for yourself for those that already haven't downloaded it or don't have a copy for yourself. If you log into your complimentary e-learning brothers account you can actually find this on the site and download it and and start utilizing it so definitely take advantage of that so these are the 10 elements that we're going to talk about um, for our session today we are going to talk about choices simplify plan SMEs, and efficiency so this these uh, middle sections right here and then for our next session session two we're going to talk about the others Okay, we are going to start off with a poll. First question, how do you leverage your SMEs when creating a course? Do you A, try to use them for your content, but also ask questions about common mistakes and practices? Um, do you really see them as an ally and somebody that you can work with? Do you more so use them at the beginning and the end just to make sure that what you're including in the course is correct? Um, are you maybe more along the lines of a C? Do you try to avoid working with them as much as possible? Hopefully they throw the content over the fence and you grab it and, and run and create a course. Or are you more of a one-stop shop where you're the SME for everything that you create? So if you have questions, you're the one-stop shop. You, um, you, It's on you to resolve all those issues. Go ahead and answer those and then we'll we'll take it from there. So that pulls up on the screen. You guys can go ahead and vote uh, just by clicking right on the screen. Do you use them for your content? Do you use them at the beginning and again at the end? Or try to avoid using them all together? Um, and then, of course, if you're the, the subject matter expert for most things you create, it's all on you. Go ahead and vote for that one. We'll give you guys a few more seconds to vote there, uh, maybe five more seconds here. Um, I am seeing a very, very early lead for one of these, though. All right. Here's the results here. Um, so yeah, we've got 71% of the audience uh, use them for their content, see them as an ally. 21% uses them at the beginning and again at the end. 8% um, is the subject matter expert for most things they create. And 0% said they avoid working with subject matter experts. So that's good. That's great. That's great. So it sounds like most everybody is already on the right track, which is which is what I like to see. So when we think about SMEs and working with SMEs, um, you want to make sure that you're utilizing your SMEs to, to see them as an ally. They're the ones that are going to help you 
identify those stories, the best practices, the way that the processes should be working, um, but they're also the ones usually with their ears to the ground that can help you identify what the most common mistakes and best practices are, what people are doing that they shouldn't be doing. Um, let's take a look at that. So as you're designing your course, you've got your task and that is in the very center of what you're trying to create your course about. So let's say you are creating a course about um, how to utilize a new software system. You want to know um, what behavior changes need to um, take place, what the success and the failure criteria are, the common mistakes, what the results of those would be, and then any implications of, of tools and obstacles. So the first thing that you want to ask about is what will the learner be expected to do at the end of their training? What what reality am I going to or supposed to approximate as much as I can or as close as I can within the course? And that goes back to your learning objectives, right? What does the learner need to know, do, or feel as a result of the course? So you want to make sure that you get that so that you can have ideally tangible results at the end of the course and you can go back and measure your success. Did that behavior change happen? And you're going to get what that behavior change should be from your SME most likely. The next you want to make sure and identify what that success criteria is and maybe the success criteria for this me might be a little bit different from your primary business stakeholders but you want to make sure when you're asking questions of this me and identifying what you're included in including in your course so that you can design your activities what does success look like for that SME? what will make it real what what is that performance bar that needs to be accomplished but then also you need to find out what that failure criteria looks like. That might be a result score. Is that going to be a cut score of say 75% of, of success in order to pass the course? Um, or it might be um, something more along the lines of, of uh, a scenario. So if you're including realistic scenarios in your courses, you wanna know what those common mistakes and, and um, errors are that people are making that they think are correct so that you can include those in the course and provide appropriate remediation. Common mistakes and, and misunderstandings. This is where you have a critical and a key opportunity to help make the course as effective as possible using affective information. The affective objectives to where your note, where your learners are really going to feel the impact of their decisions. Um, that will come with your choices and your distractors and we're going to get into that in a little bit more detail a little bit later on in this session. Um, but you want to make sure that the common mistakes that you're including in your course for your distractors are the things that are going to ultimately drive your learners to improve and, and make the behavior change. And the place that you get that is through the interviews of your with your SMEs. Um, they're, they're critical to that. And then you also want to make sure and ask them what the results would be, either success or failure. So if it is you're implementing a sales training and the positive and results of that is that sales go up let's say five percent and the company does really well and it's you know sustainable long term then then you want to know what that would be but then again along the line the lines of, of the consequences what are the realistic results of what that six that failure might look like does that mean that the company shuts down does that mean that there's layoffs does it mean that um, you have to take alternate approaches based on poor decisions your SMEs are going to have that and that will 
allow you to write meaningful feedback with your with your questions. And then your SMEs are also going to be the ones that can help you implement your, your point of failure tips, the things where they can identify ahead of time, going back to the, the software lunch. They're gonna be the ones, hopefully, that will have already identified the things that, that your teammates or your learners might have the most questions on, that might be the most um, problematic and give you tips and, and suggestions for that. Also, the things that they might run into. For example, if they're doing beta testing on that software and there seems to be a particular sticking point in, a, in one specific area, they might be able to help you overcome that with a, a different workflow or something like that. So you want to make sure that you ask your SMEs for that kind of information and that kind of detail. Okay, let's take a look at our second poll question. After you have the content, what is your design strategy? Do you check the content against the objectives and identify the best approach and right format for your course? Do you immediately start putting it together um, because your time is, is the most precious resource that you have? Or do you cut and paste most of your information from the source document and slap a quiz on it at the end? Go ahead and vote on your screen. Yep, so that's up, and it looks like a lot of people are already participating. This is great. Um, go ahead and, and vote for your your uh, your current situation. Um, is there a right or a wrong answer to this, Jen? Um, so <laughs> I would say that there's a good, better, and bad. Well, there's probably one answer that's definitely frowned upon, um, but there's definitely a better and best with this one for sure. Sure, and is that always in the control of the the developer, or the designer? In general, it is. Um, that can definitely change depending on time and resources and just the complexity of the project. Some, and we'll talk about this in a little bit further detail, some projects are going to be a Sistine Chapel and you need perfection and others are going to be, uh, we need a quick and dirty, get it out as soon as we can. Sure. All right. Well, here's those results. Um, the, there's 57% of our audience that says they check the content against their objectives. 37% says they put the course together and design as they go. And 5% cut and paste most of the info from the share, the uh, source document. Okay. Great. So let's, let's talk about this a little bit as far as strategy. Um, one, when you're, when you first have your content from your SME and you've identified the key points that need to be covered, in order to make the training as effective as possible, we want to make sure that we take our concepts, our information, and our practice and make it as digestible as possible for our learners. And that's the one thing that I try to keep in mind when I'm designing my courses is when my learner is sitting alone taking their course, what experience are they going to have? Um, ideally, we don't want to just regurgitate the content. We want to design it. Okay, so think about, whoops, let's go back one. Think about when you go to a restaurant, why do people cook food that we could make a lot cheaper and more economically at our house? You know, you go to a fancy restaurant and you order food. Um, one of my one of my go-tos um, when when I'm running late or have a lot on my plate is um, we do Subway uh, Subway at my house and yeah I can make sandwiches at my house um, but I am sometimes willing to make that effort to stop 
So if you look at what it takes to make either a Subway sandwich or in this case, lasagna, would you pay $14.95 if your food arrived at your table and it looked like this? You've got your lasagna noodles kind of clumped up there. You've got your ricotta cheese, your mushrooms, your, it looks like what I'm guessing, maybe basil, <laughs> your meat sauce. Would you pay $14.95 for that? Probably not. If, if that arrived at your table, you'd, you'd probably be pretty unhappy. And um, what we call this is we call it the lunch lady plop. And if you think to back to your elementary school days or your junior high days when you went through the lunch line, the lunch lady just kind of plopped your food on the plate and you just kind of went down the line. They didn't necessarily put any um, extra care or effort. It was just kind of, you know, served it up and it just kind of looked like a plop of food. What we add as instructional designers and developers is we add value to our courses that we create. And our stakeholders actually expect us to add that value through the content that we add, the method that we use, and the presentation that we create. We're, we're a chef. We, um, we create great experiences or experiences that aren't just lunch lady plops um, onto the course. Um, you want to make sure that you're adding value for, for what it is that you're including in the course. Um, and what that means is thinking about the activities that you want to incorporate in your course. It doesn't necessarily have to be the most gamified, amazing, awesome um, thing that your learners have ever seen, but that also means that hopefully it's not a cut and paste. And if it's one of those situations where I, I get it. I've been in those situations where you've got to get stuff out as quickly as possible and it's a one and done and they're never going to see it again. Um, I absolutely get that and I've been I've been there. Um, but there there is in most cases still an opportunity to make sure that you're adding some kind of instructional design to the course, even if it's a one and done, in order to make sure that your learners are taking everything from it that they need to take from it. Maybe you're infusing into that um, reflective questions. Maybe you're adding a graphic that makes sense based on the content. Maybe you're asking them to think about things in a little bit of a different way that challenges their initial perceptions, going back to those affective values, challenging them to think about something a little bit differently. That's the value that we add as, as instructional designers and, and learning professionals is to, to help the learners think about things in a little bit of a different way in the way that we present things in our methods of designing our courses. And sometimes you will have the opportunity to create amazing awesome courses that will that your learners will be talking about forever and those are obviously opportunities where you're probably not going to cut and paste stuff um, and again even even with um, compliance type of training there's there's potentially still a way to to get around the cut and paste um, and I think we've got some examples in that in this a little bit later that we can go over some ways to do that. There's there's ways to get around that. So um, definitely make sure that you're you're adding your value uh, through through the way that you present your content and, and the strategies in which you do that. Okay, next poll question. During the process of your 
the project process, what do you feel like is your biggest time waster? Is it going to be making sure that every slide is your Sistine Chapel of instructional design perfection and it's absolutely great? Is it um, issues with scope creep where your stakeholders, stakeholders are asking for too much or too little or maybe there's a last minute change, um, they have edits to content that they didn't have before and now they're different. Uh, do they want different colors and layouts? Maybe they want a little bit different shade based on the branding. Um, does it take you a long time to find the, the media that you're going to use in your course, whether that's narration or images or graphics, um, or is it maybe something else? And if it is D, um, as you're voting, um, maybe go ahead and, and type your answer in the chat window and tell me what some of those uh, bigger, biggest time wasters might be. So early responses are coming in. One of these is definitely the leader as far as uh, time is concerned here. Um, I'm seeing a couple people vote for others, so I'll wait a moment for them to to type in what their uh, what their challenge is. Um, one person says it's 508 compliance. Trying to, to get up to compliance is difficult. Um, another person says project prep, getting uh, far too into project management, uh, getting all the content from the subject matter experts, approvals, um, wording and rewording to try and simplify but translate uh, the concept. Um, lots of com uh, combinations of the, the three that you posted. All so three. I'll just go ahead and put those responses okay. here up on the screen. 46% said uh, the scope creep from stakeholders is very difficult. 23% uh, said media searches. 20% said making sure every slide or page is perfect. And then a solid 10% is still putting in their, their challenges okay. um, even as we speak. There's one, uh, yeah, combinations between B and C. Today I would say rewriting the storyboard after the third version. <laughs> Yesterday it was looking up an image of hair in soup. <laughs> oh, that's a new one. I've not heard of hair in soup. Um, okay, I, I'm kind of curious of what that course would be about. Maybe uh, maybe a... Uh, um, restaurant kind of health safety kind of course that, that one intrigues me um, okay so it sounds like it sounds like um, everybody that's responding has designed courses and, and dealt with all of these time wasters uh, from time to time so um, I guess the long and short of it is in order to be efficient you're you're never going to be able to cut out all of that but there are some techniques and strategies that we can talk through that's going to help you to hopefully make your processes as, as efficient as possible um, the, the derailers are never going to go away completely but let's talk about how we can mitigate some of that so these are what we classify as our most common derailers uh, first one is the creative genius system syndrome and this one i alluded, alluded to a little bit earlier with the question about the Sistine Chapel. Um, when when I'm personally designing a course, and I know a lot of our instructional designers here at, that work with us at eLearning Brothers are kind of the same way, is you want every slide to be perfect. You want it to be a best representation of your work. And obviously you want to make sure that it's error-free and grammatically correct and, and um, placement and all of that looks good. What I will say is that not every slide in your course has to be the Sistine Chapel with artwork um, that 
amazes your audience. Like you, you have to decide what, what is going to be the most valuable for your learners and put your bank of, of time, energy, and effort there. Um, most likely it's going to be an activity that aligns with your core and your course objectives. Um, and that's when, where you want to put your energy and focus and maybe that makes it okay that some of the other slides are either a little bit less interactive or maybe fewer graphics um, so that you can spend more time, energy, and effort into those where it really counts. Um, there may also be slides, and, and I've definitely, um, where I'm working on a theme, if I have a course that has a particular theme to it, um, I might struggle with a particular section on it in order to try to figure out how to make an activity work. And if I've spent too long on it, uh, I will just say, you know what, this isn't coming to me right now. I'm going to put that aside and I'll figure that out later. And um, most of the time, my answers for that slide will come after not thinking about it when I am at the grocery store or on the treadmill or just, you know, things things will just come to me in different ways when I'm not focusing on it. So don't waste your time, energy, and effort when you're spinning your wheels. Move on to something else. Um, the next one is uh, the slide-by-slide -slide design. You want to, when I first started as an instructional designer, I got my content and I had my outline, a very high level outline, and I just started designing slide by slide. And what I would often find is stuff that I designed to go on slide five. By the time I got to slide 25, didn't um, slide 25 didn't mesh up with slide five and I had to go back and do rework. Um, so one of the ways to combat that is through um, doing a blueprint or a plan. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but one of the ways that you can go avoid having to go back and, and doing rework is to get away from that slide-by-slide -slide design. Scope struggles. It sounds like based on the responses to the poll questions, scope struggles are, are definitely where a lot of people have struggles. And I'll be the first to admit, even after I've been doing this for almost 10 years, I still, um, this is one of the areas where I have struggles still um, with, with, key key stakeholders wanting to add stuff and cut stuff and when you do notice that happen just start raising that flag immediately and just having those conversations with your SMEs um, so that they understand to say hey you know what I can absolutely add this content or cut this content or I can redesign these 50 slides um, we can absolutely do that but let's talk about what that impact is and if they're willing to to make that change and and be accountable to whatever impact that is to the course, then then move forward. And maybe it's somewhere in the middle, maybe you redesign five slides that, that potentially have the greatest impact and, and the other 20 slides that aren't, aren't as big a deal, maybe those ones stay. But definitely raise the flag early um, and, and make sure that you're having those conversations because it's always better to have that conversation sooner rather than later. Um, and also make sure that if you are having those scope struggles, um, make sure that you're communicating that with your project manager or whomever it might be. Don't just don't just kind of take it at face value and be like, okay, well, they wanted me to redesign these 25 slides. I better put my head down and, and move forward um, because that can cause problems too, right? The, the, your, your stakeholders need to be aware that what the impact of that is and maybe they, maybe what they were hoping for with that change isn't going to necessarily, you know, be worth 
whatever that impact might be. So continue to have those conversations. Um, the elusive image hunt, uh, and this this comes back to the hair in the soup image. Um, recently for me, uh, one of the scenes, one of the courses I designed required me to find um, images within a uh, hip and with it um, nightclub scene that had a lot of diversity within the image and something that might come out of a, a Los Angeles or New York or Chicago club scene. Um, and as much as you might think that those images are out there, it it took a little bit of time to actually find the right image that matched with with our clients um, with our clients' needs. And I found it. Um, I found them, but it but it probably took me about four hours out of out of my day to find the images that worked. Um, and we were okay with that because the client was aware of the image how long it would take to find those images once we started digging into it and they were okay with that and uh, we moved forward with it but again that kind of aligns with the, the scope struggles and just making sure that you're finding the right images um, can take time and it, is it worth it to have you know a specific specific number of characters or you know is there something that you can maybe change maybe maybe it requires you to change the whole scenario um, and, and will that align with what your stakeholders are trying to do? Make sure that you're asking those questions. And even with the images, maybe that particular image isn't on the, the stock website that you're looking at. Maybe that might require you to look at a different stock image website um, to, to find what you're looking for. But uh, don't, don't spin your wheels looking for images that may not exist. Um, think about alternate ways to get the same point across. Maybe that's Again, um, revising your scenario a little bit, or maybe that's just something different altogether. Is there an alternate way to uh, get the same task accomplished? And then our last one on this section for derailers is engineering in excess. We have a term that we use internally, and I don't know if it's kind of a, an industry term. I, th I think this might be more of an ELB special, but we call it when we do a ton of over-engineering, we call it over-ID'd. I've, and it's probably not really a thing, but we have over over designed, over instructionally designed a slide where we put too many bells and whistles and fanciness for what the slide really needs, and it takes too much time, energy, and effort for what the learner's really going to take out of it. Um, if it's just a simple true and false question, we probably don't need all of the bells and whistles and narration and fanciness going off. Um, that time could better be. Uh, spend on something else. So just think about where, again, where you're putting your your energy and resources into when you're designing your courses and is the amount of effort that you're putting into it aligning with what the goals of the course are. If it's not something that ties to one of your key objectives, your stakeholders won't ever care about it, your learners won't ever care about it. If it's something that just more you care about because you came up with this really cool idea and you want to kind of play it out, um, maybe, you know, maybe it's time to rethink that and, and put your efforts to somewhere else. Okay, actually, before I go on to that next question, um, I'm going to pause and see if there are any questions that are coming in from these um, other sections that I can answer before we move on. Sure, if anybody has any questions, go ahead and ask them. Um, we don't have any 
uh, right now other than where can I get the periodic table of instructional design. You can grab Great. that in the free library. It's in Lectora, Storyline, and Captivate, so you can grab that and uh, try it out. Um, there's also a question about where some free image resources. I'm not sure where free image resources are, but if you're an eLearning Brothers subscriber, we have a huge uh, stock asset library that has lots of images in it. Um, any other questions about the periodic table of instructional design? Um, are there any methods you use to keep yourself on track and avoid some of these distractors? Yeah. And and as we're going through some of these questions, if you obviously this this um, group is very versed within the industry, it sounds like. So if you have particular suggestions of ways that you get around some of these derailers, definitely feel free to put them in the chat um, and, and share your experience with others. Um, I'll be the first to admit that um, you know some of the ways that I learn things in order to get around around some of these derailers are, are strategies that my teammates have, have suggested to me. Um, so some of the things that I do to get around some of these derailers, um, the avoiding the slide-by-slide -slide design is, is I think, was a big one for me. I, and I, I we're going to talk about blueprinting in a minute, and I hope I didn't just give away a big, you know, uh, jump the shark type of thing. But um, planning out my courses ahead of time and really identifying what I'm going to include, how I'm going to include it. Um, that will also allow me to quickly identify and red flag anywhere that I feel that scope creep might be an issue and start having those conversations with my SMEs ahead of time. Um, that will also help. And I think also um, with that, having, having relationships with my SMEs and my stakeholders, and this can be a little bit more difficult in large organizations where um, maybe you've never met your stakeholder before and, and this is kind of a one and done situation or one and done project for them. Um, it still is worth the time and energy and effort to establish that relationship with that person um, and just have that conversation because ultimately, hopefully, you have the same goal in mind. Your, your stakeholder wants a course that's effective and, and will meet whatever the needs are of the business, and you want the course to meet whatever the needs are of the business. But in addition to that, you want to create an amazing experience for your learners that will accomplish whatever the goals are so that when they are done with that course, um, they will be able to accomplish whatever those objectives are. And that starts by having that relationship with your stakeholder and just reinforcing that you do have the same goals in mind and that you're not suggesting that they cut out 50% of the content because you, you just don't want to use it. You're suggesting that you make those cuts or revisions or edits or you're pushing back on some of the things that you're incorporating or not incorporating into the course because that's the best experience for you, you feel like that's going to be the best experience for your learners. And when you establish that relationship, that's going to get those lines of communication open. And I know that kind of went off on a tangent a little bit, um, but I think the relationship that you have with your, your stakeholders is absolutely critical to helping um, with your, with your scope struggles and um, some of those, some of those things that tend to continue to pop up over time. Um, just, 
work with your SMEs as best as you can to keep that conversation going so that when you go to them with some of these issues where you legitimately do feel like it's it's either scope creep or not the best end result for your learner, they're going to take that into consideration when they're making that decision. Because at the end of the day, chances are your stakeholder is the one that is ultimately responsible for that course. They're the one that's coming to you saying, hey, you know what, I need this course created and, and here's what I need in it. And they're going to be the one that's held accountable to whatever those business results are. Um, so they're the ones that are probably going to make that final decision but you do have the opportunity as as an advocate for your learner um to push for the best experience possible for them and, and you can do that through open communication excellent um there's uh in response to the the media gathering uh issue one person says um i like to start by putting an image that's good enough and then if you have time later search for one that is better um, another question that came up earlier, is there any info about how to get um, your subject matter experts in healthcare to help with design? Hmm. That's an interesting one. So um, maybe the person that posted that question, a follow-up to that, maybe clarify a little bit for me what you mean help with design. Do you mean um, having them write out scenarios for you and giving them the content for the, helping you get the content for the scenarios? Um, maybe explain that a little bit more and, and I can um, pinpoint that a little bit more. Um, if it's from the perspective of just getting them to help with design and, and helping identify the scenarios that, that should be included, one of the things that I actually started doing within maybe the last year or so, I've always had my list of questions that I will generally use with my SMEs when I start a course, you know, the standard, okay, tell me about the audience, you know, are they tech savvy, you know, blah, 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 all of my audience analysis questions. But then um, as I'm getting into the nitty gritty of the content, I will specifically ask them the questions. Okay, what are the most common common things that people are doing wrong? Um, what do they think that they're doing right that's actually wrong? Um, what do you need the learners to be able to do when they're done? And a lot of times what will come from that when you're asking them about what the most common misunderstandings are and what the implications of those questions are, you'll actually start to um, have the scenarios start to write themselves. You'll identify, okay, well, it seems like a significant portion of my audience is doing X and they really should be doing Y. Um, let's create a scenario about that. But then for the feedback on that, I will also include um, information on why X is the wrong answer or maybe not the best answer and why Y is the right answer. So um, even if they are, and we'll get into this in a little bit more detail, um, but but you can you can put together a list of questions for your SMEs that you have prepared ahead of time and just have them go through and fill that out. And you may get an, a little bit of pushback initially because they're going to get that document and they're going to see it and they're going to be like, um, um, they are going to uh, not um, want to fill it out but um, make sure that they make sure that they take the time to fill it out because it's going to help both them and you in the long run. 
Excellent. Uh, there's lots more questions. We'll just take one more right now before we move on and we'll take questions uh, more on later. Um, do you have a specific project planning tool that you use or that um, you, you've enjoyed? Yep, I'm glad that you asked that. So let's go on to the next one. So let's take a look at this poll. How would you describe, that actually led right into my next question or our next poll. How would you describe your planning style for courses? Would you say that you're A, you make a blueprint um, and make sure everything is accounted for? Do you maybe B, think through your ideas and make notes and then just get started? Do you have C, hopefully it's not C, more of a slide-by-slide -slide approach and if you are doing C, maybe hopefully that will change after today? Or is it maybe D, it depends on the project if it's more complex? So we'll go ahead and open this up. You guys can now vote on these and let us know what you're doing. Um, Jen did hint that a slide-by-slide -slide approach is probably not the best, but if you're doing it, um, I'm sure I'm sure that uh, there's reasons, and, and so that's just fine. Um, we'll go ahead and give you a couple moments to uh, to vote here. Um, I am seeing an early lead in uh, in one of these. We'll give you guys about 10 more seconds to vote. Alrighty, now let's go ahead and launch these, uh, share them out. So 39% uh, said that it depends on the project that they're working on. 33% said that they think through their ideas then take notes that they can reference. And then 22% uh, said they make a detailed blueprint of every project. So there's really not too many that are uh, doing this slide-by-slide -slide approach. But um, there are a couple, and I'm sure that, that there's very good reason for that. Okay, great. So as you guys <laughs> may have just seen that, uh, my computer, I forgot to plug in my laptop cord. So that is me in real life. Sometimes that happens. <laughs> okay, so it sounds like we're a little bit, a little bit of everything. Um, well, except for the slide by slide. Um, again, and, and I admit freely, uh, when I first started within instructional design, I did design slide by slide. Uh, not only did it take longer, it wasn't super effective. Um, I, uh, you know, it, to each their own, um, but hopefully today uh, you, um, we have offered some <laughs> alternate, alternate suggestions. Um, okay. So let's take a look, uh, whether you do a full on outline, a blueprint, a storyboard, hopefully you have a plan before you start. And then as you're going through and creating that plan, it gives you the opportunity as you're creating that plan to identify your pitfalls, um, raise any red flags that we just talked about a minute ago, and to call out to your stakeholders what may or may not be um, problems with the scope and it allows you to take care of those things sooner rather than later and sometimes some of those things can be being taken care of in the background while you're formulating your masterpiece um, and you're kind of uh, planning around it and your your stakeholders and project managers and things like that can work out some of that other stuff in the back end and, and mitigate your risks with your with your courses before they actually come to fruition. And the way that you can do that is with the blueprint. And I'm gonna go through some of these 
there's a total of five things that you can do uh, within your blueprinting process, and then I'll show you a, a sample of what one will, what one looks like and one that we, a couple of samples that we use. So the first thing is you want to make sure that you gather all of your content. Obviously, you're going to do that with your SMEs. Um, you're going to identify the stuff that stays and the stuff that goes. Um, you know, what stuff is a need to know versus a nice to have. Uh, the next thing that you want to do is you want to start documenting everything that you're going to need in order to be successful. Those are going to be your core objectives that need to be accomplished, um, maybe an executive summary um, that will allow you to make sure that you keep what that goal is in mind. Uh, what are your affective goals? Um, and I've, I've seen this in a lot of situations. Um, there are, it's it's pretty common to have the, the task-oriented goals and the knowledge goals, um, but not necessarily do we do a great job at, at creating affective goals. So you wanna make sure that you've got those. And it's not necessarily that they're not there, they're just oftentimes unstated. Um, so make sure that you're asking your, your stakeholders what those affective goals are so that you can incorporate that into the training and create that feeling that, that makes your learners want to actually drive towards whatever that behavior change is. Um, the next thing is to go ahead and create the design of the course. Do you want to, um, you know, what, what does your design look like? What kind of, what kind of activities are you going to include in your course? What um, situations or scenarios do you need to in include in your course? What kind of simulations are you going to be able to create in order to um, simulate whatever as close as possible whatever that reality is for the learner so um, going back to that software simulation example that we talked about earlier um, you know do you do you create um, something that looks like a, a sandbox type of environment and allow the learner to um, fail in a safe environment um, what does that look like for for the course that you're building so you want to make sure you you figure out what that's going to look like and then you're going to want to refine that um, Pretty early on in my um, my ID career, uh, one of my managers told me that um, she didn't she wanted me to try a couple of different ideas and suggestions and, and brainstorm a few ideas and suggestions because chances are the first one that I came up with um, probably wasn't going to be my best. And <laughs> uh, true true to this day, in, in most cases, that's not that that's the case is that um, as I start brainstorming and thinking about things, um, the first idea that I come up with isn't my best. And and sometimes um, this is this is true for me and, and maybe it's true for, for others. Um, when we when we think of something for a course and we're like, oh, yeah, that, that's going to be the great idea. It's going to be so awesome. And then when you actually go to implement it, sometimes it doesn't work as, as well as you think it's going to work. Um, you you decide that you want to create this amazing robot theme for your course and then you actually go to create the robot theme and it just doesn't match your content. So be open and willing to refine your ideas um, because it's through that process that that through that blueprinting process that you're going to identify what some of those things may or may not work for your course and you'll be able to change them ahead of time and, and mitigate wasting time. And then the next one is, you know, save the best for last. Obviously, start building out your um, start building out your course. Here is an example of a blueprint that we created for one of our clients. Um, up at the top, we've got the goal for 
the, um, the slide, we've got the methods that we're going to use in order to make that goal happen. The presentation talks about what's going to be on the screen, and then we've also got the key ideas or messages that we want to convey. And then we also have a section underneath that where the content for that slide is going to be pulled from. And this is a pretty uh, this is a pretty detailed blueprint. Um, so we've got all of our key ideas and things like that on the left, and then we've got a sample graphic on the right. And what um, somebody alluded to this a little bit earlier in the in the um, chat. This is also one of the ways that, that we use to say, okay, here's an example of a graphic that we might use. We'll probably replace it later or we'll refine it later, but at least this gets our brains thinking about what we might want to put on that slide and allow us to say, you know, yes or no, or yep, that still works. Let's keep it and let's put it in the course. Or you know what, the more I've thought about it, it's it's probably not going to work out the way that I thought. Let's Let's change it to something else. Okay, and oh, that's the example of the uh, plan, empty plan. That's That slide should have been swapped around. My apologies for that. Um, okay, here's another example, um, a little bit kind of keyed down. And, and this one is, this one feels a little bit more like a uh, three column storyboard. You've got your key messages on the screen. You've still got your goals and, and your approach and your method. Um, this one includes potential narration, and then it also includes the the um, potential uh, things that the learner will check off as they um, go through the as they go through that particular activity. So, with this particular one, it's a harassment activity, and we've asked the learner to identify what things may or may not be offensive and check it off. And then, rather than putting a visual in that side on the right side of the screen, we've just included. Um, some thoughts on what that graphic might be. Okay, and then one thing, um, so let's talk a little bit um, before we move on to our, our last, uh, our last um, element. When you think about blueprinting, um, the answer is probably somewhere as if you think back to the poll question it's probably somewhere between a make sure that you document everything out and account for everything and d it depends on the project um, for the projects that i work on that are amazing and awesome and we've got all the bells and whistles and and media and everything under the sun included in that course i am absolutely going to do a blueprint um, because that covers me to make sure that I am going in the right direction but it also gives me the opportunity to have the stakeholder approve on that um, that's especially true if I'm going to do some, some kind of a theming to the course or maybe something that's a little bit more out of the ordinary from what that client normally does um, so that allows us to get the buy-off before I actually hunker down and go into my hole and, and start doing the storyboarding for that. Um, but if the course is maybe more of a basic page turner type of course or limited interaction, rather than doing a full-on blueprint um, to this level, maybe I might take and make notes in the original deck that our client sent me um, and just make notes to each side of, of the slide where content is going to be handled or where the content exists so that I know what I'm going to do when I get to that slide. 
um, but I have still already looked th through the full deck, made plans for all of the content and how to address it so that as I go through and, and start building my course out or doing the storyboard for my course, I have notes, you know, weeks later when I actually start to actually start to implement it and it wouldn't even necessarily need to be weeks. I mean, sometimes you can forget what you're thinking even after a couple of days, especially if the note is a little bit cryptic. Um, so find, I would say um, you don't necessarily have to go full, you know, full out like we've got on the screen, the samples that I've shown, um, but you do want to do something and that will help you to identify those um, red flags and, and mitigate some of those scope creep and risks and things like that. And also it will help you identify the things that are going to take longer so that you can make sure that you're spending time on those things rather than the slides that are, are not as essential to the goals of the course. Okay, our last poll. When challenging learners, how do you create your distractors? Do you work with your SMEs to find out the common performances and mistakes? Uh, do you be make slight variations to the correct answer? And really what you're looking for is just to make sure that the learner knows the content. Do you not really have a strategy at all? Just write a couple of um, plausible distractors and then throw in that freebie that they're going to identify immediately. Or D, it's not really applicable to you. You do a lot of true and false items. Go ahead and vote on your screen. All right, so those are going out here. Um, we're getting a lot of responses already. Again, we we almost have, <laughs> we almost always have the same amount of people that jump on the same, uh, the same first answer. Um, so we'll give you guys just a few more seconds to vote. And uh, all right, last call. Three, two, one, and here's those results. So 54% uh, said they work with their SMEs to find common performance mistakes. 33% say that they uh, make them a slight variation from the correct answer. 11% say they don't really have a strategy. And 1% says this isn't applicable to me, or they do true or false. Okay. So here's what I will say. And this wouldn't necessarily need to be assessment items at the end of your course. It could also be for the challenges that you give them when they're in the course within the activities. Ideally, the behavior change is going to happen when you're providing them choices that seem plausible and realistic or the mistakes that they're making that they think that are right. That's, that's how learners, when they're all by themselves, on their own taking these courses, that's how we're gonna provide them the insight and the feedback in order to change whatever behavior it is that we need to that we need them to change. And the robust choices and making them, obviously you want to make them plausible, um, but you also want to make sure that they're um, really thinking about it and they're applying that cognition. And the way that you do that is through kind of a nutritional mixture, um, as we like to call it. So you want to make sure that your distractors include the common well-intentioned mistakes, the things that they think that are correct that are actually not. So if they think that they should be um, entering notes or comments into that new software tool a particular way and they're actually doing it wrong, um, that might be an area where you want to um, hone in on and do a scenario about that. But you also want to make sure that you, when you're doing those common, well-intentioned mistakes, that you're telling them 
what the correct answer is, but you also want to tell them why it's the correct answer. Because if they don't know why they're picking, if they don't know why the wrong choice is that they're picking is wrong, they are potentially still going to be picking that wrong answer. They need to know the why behind the wrong answer. Um, you also could potentially, unless you're doing a situation of, of a good, better, best, you want to try to avoid choices that are okay or not optimal. Um, and that would be the situation where you've got the correct answer, but maybe you tweak it just a little bit. Um, there, there may be still a place for that, um, but you want to make sure that if you're doing the okay choices that aren't necessarily optimal, um, again, that you're providing that feedback for why that okay choice isn't great. And then you obviously want to make sure that you're including that best choice, the best answer. Let me give you a quick sample of what that might be. So we like to say everybody has a good reason for doing the wrong thing, for picking the wrong answer. The first one, the top pink one is a negative one. It's obviously wrong. So if you um, have a deadline at work and you're doing a course and you've got a deadline at work and your two possible answers are shown on the screen, are your, are your learners going to pick the first one, the pink one, or are they more likely to pick the second one, the green one. Chances are, and, and if you really look at the answers, they're actually saying the exact same thing, but the way that the second one is written makes it seem more plausible. So you want to um, re remove any of the negative tones to it. Um, and again, you know, uh, try to avoid using always and never. Those are quick giveaways of, of something probably not being a correct answer or being the correct answer, so avoid avoid the extremes um, but just think about think about ways that you can phrase things with your choices in a way that will um, allow the learner to really think about it um, and and make the decision and then if they do get the incorrect decision make sure that you're providing them the reason why it's incorrect and why they may have chosen that wrong thing and why um, it they may have thought that it was correct but in reality what the correct answer is And a round of applause to Jen Fairbanks from eLearning Brothers for this episode. For more learning inspiration and resources, visit eLearningBrothers.com.